You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Um, but I think a lot of it is is fear of the federal government and fear of change and the unknown because there hasn't Maine has so little public land, federally owned land. It's like four percent of the state of Maine. Uh, the rest is private. So when you compare that to Western states, you know, Washington, Oregon, or almost are over half federally owned. We are committed to making sure that every home and business here um, in Maine has connectivity. Right now, there are about two percent. Um, of homes that have zero access to broadband connection. Um, That comes to about maybe 20,000 or so homes based on U.S. Census. And then if you think about all the homes that are not included in U.S. Census, like our seasonal homes, we're probably doubling that number. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 259, Accessing Maine, airing for the first time on Sunday, September 4th, 2016. How do we help people live, work, and play in Maine? By providing improved access to the outdoors and virtual connectivity to the greater world. Today's guests are helping create this access. Lucas St. Clair is proposing a new national park on land that his family's foundation will donate. And Susan Corbett, president and CEO of Axiom Technologies, is bringing broadband to the most rural parts of our state. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Curtis Memorial Library in Brunswick features a unique interactive space called The Collaboratory with rotating monthly themes for all ages and interests. Join us in September for the exhibit, The Writer's Life, and on Wednesday, September 14th at 6.30 p.m. when Dr. Lisa Belisle and writer Joan Dempsey will continue a conversation begun earlier this year on the importance of writing spaces and Joan's wonderful backyard writing shed, a former chicken coop, as well as the craft of writing and Joan's acquisition of a significant research grant to travel to Warsaw and Washington, D.C. for work on This Is How It Begins, a novel in progress. And more about the writer's life, please visit curtislibrary.com for more information or call 207-725-5242. Extension 219. Today on Love, Maine Radio, we have with us Lucas St. Clair. Lucas was born and raised into a subsistence living family in the Northwoods of Maine with no running water or electricity for most of his childhood. He left that lifestyle to attend a boarding school in the western mountains of Maine and went on to study abroad, pursuing a culinary arts degree at Le Cordon Bleu in London. Lucas worked in the beginning of his career in the restaurant and wine industry in New York City, Maine, and Seattle. 
In 2011, Lucas took over his family's operating foundation, Elliottsville Plantation, Inc. EPI owns 125,000 acres of timberland in northern and central Maine that they have been purchasing since 1998. They have been managing the land and adding infrastructure for recreation over the last several years. The goal is to create a national park and recreation area with the land by donating it to the National Park Service and passing legislation to authorize it. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. You actually have a really interesting story, and there's so many places that we could pick up on in this. Part of what I'm really interested in is this whole subsistence family that you came from. Yeah, so my uh, my parents were living in on the West Coast in California. My mom went to art school at the San Francisco Art Institute, and they, in the late 60s, started reading about Helen and Scott Nearing's Living Off the Land here in Maine, and my grandfather, my father's father, was a steel salesman for Bethlehem Steel, and his territory was northern New England. And in the early 50s, built a camp on um, Parker Pond in the Belgrade Lakes. And so my dad, as a young boy, would come up and spend time there. And so there was this connection to Maine, and they weren't sure whether they wanted to leave the West Coast. They had a couple thousand dollars to buy land. They wanted to live off the land somewhere. Looked at California and Oregon and Washington was too expensive. And so they went to Vermont and a real estate agent in Vermont said, you know, for a couple thousand dollars to buy land, the only place you can really do it is northern Maine. And so that's where they headed and built a cabin in the woods in Piscataquis County. My twin sister and I were born there. And it was quite a existence. I mean, it was it was very rural and rustic. And um, they lived like that for 13 years. Um, it was, but it was a great place to grow up and a great way to grow up. You know, there was, we didn't know any, we didn't know about television. We didn't know about electricity, you know, so we didn't miss it, you know, and so we just got to spend a lot of time outside and it's very healthy. You know, we ate very well and we got to spend a lot of time outside playing and really it's the best, best way to grow up, I think. Were you homeschooled? No, we, we went to... We went to public school for a bit. We went to uh, sort of like a co-op school that's friends of my family's friends, and they all started together. And they sort of bounced around schools in Piscataquis County. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was four, and so that sort of we sort of split up then uh, until high school, and then I went to Gould out in, in Western Maine. So what was what was that transition like? Uh, it was it was a little strange. I mean, going from r- rural Maine uh, to I mean, staying in rural Maine, but expo- You know, my freshman year, I went to the dorm, and my roommate was from Hong Kong and was still learning English. And uh, you know, it was, it was quite a transition, but it was great. You know, it was great exposure to a much more diverse group of people. Um, the school also had a, a lot of emphasis on being in the outdoors, and so I really was able to continue like this passion for being outside and hiking and camping and uh, I loved I love being at Gould. So how did this um, interest in food and the restaurant industry and wine how did that enter into all of this? It was from the outdoors so I I did a lot of um, hiking and camping climbing kayaking post uh, high school so I hiked the Appalachian Trail I took a Knoll semester in Patagonia I paddled the Northern Forest Canoe Trail and during all of those trips, everything <laughs> revolved around food, and people's attitudes were better when the food was better, and it was it became such an integral part of group dynamic. And so I thought, well, if I could learn how to cook well, this would be <laughs> this would be a good thing. And in between trips, I would work in restaurants and bakeries, and you know, as prep cook or 
making muffins in the morning and things like that. So I decided I'd go to culinary school and sort of hone the craft and and did that. And once I started working in kitchens, I recognized I was, you know, such an extrovert. I really wanted to be out where the customers were and getting, you know, being with them and having the interaction because I like watching people enjoy food. I, I like that more than I liked actually preparing food. And sort of the entry point for that was wine because I knew a lot about food and I knew you know, living in Europe, I got to, wine is like a condiment. You know, and so that you really learn about how to pair it with food. And um, so I started working as a sommelier and, and then got into wine distribution and, and importing. And so it was sort of an, a little bit of an unusual segue into the, into the wine industry, but um, it makes sense to me. <laughs> So how did you segue your way back to the Elliottsville plantation? To the, that was, uh, so I lived in Seattle for eight years and my wife and I had just had our first child and we were thinking, um, I, I didn't want to work in the restaurant industry anymore. It's just, it was, you know, all working nights and my wife and I were just sort of passing in the, you know, we'd see each other at four o'clock in the afternoon when she was leaving and I was going to work. And so, um, I was starting to think about what what I wanted to do next and my mother was working on the National Park project here in Maine and it was getting it was really frustrating you know it was like becoming personal attacks and it was very controversial and so I thought that it would be a fun thing to work on with her just provide cover for her you know being from being from Maine being a sportsman I felt like I could relate to people in a different way and so I I started working part-time in 2011 and then by a year into it, by the sort of summer of 2012, thought, if, this, if we're really going to move the needle on this, I have to move back to Maine. Because I was flying from Seattle to Washington, D.C., and then going to northern Maine. And I was like, this is not going to work from, from the West Coast. And so in 2012, the fall of 2012, my wife and I decided we moved back and moved here to Portland. And, um, and then I've been working on it ever since. And it's been an unbelievable learning curve, learning about public policy and and um, you know how our congressional delegation operates, the forestry industry, land management, you know, all of all of those things have been a really interesting dynamic learning curve. But it's been great fun. I mean, it's I just absolutely love it. So, as I'm listening to you talk about your mother getting attacked for taking this position, and you saying, "I thought it'd be fun to jump in there and do that." <laughs> That's, that's interesting to me. Some people shy away from that sort of conflict. It sounds like you kind of have embraced it in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I also recognize that every national park that's been created happened under the same. They're, they're always controversial. You know, David uh, Rockefeller was attacked for creating the Tetons. The same happened in the Smoky Mountains. The same thing happened to George Dorr when he was trying to create Acadia 100 years ago. They're always met with tremendous opposition. So I thought well, we're probably on the right track if people are opposed to this and it's controversial. Um, and, I, you know, I have a thick skin I, 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 and I, I, I wasn't going to take anything personally. It's, it, the Catan region is going through massive transition right now and they have been really for a long time. So the, you know, the thousand people were laid off from Great Northern Paper in 1986 and it's been a slow, steady decline until 2013 where the mills finally closed for good and now they're being torn down and the population has shrunk by about half unemployment is really high so people are people are going through a really tough time a lot of change and change is never easy and because we've we're talking about something new and different that sort of embodies that change we can be 
the kind of the target for some of the um, for some of the kind of this uncomfortable transition that people are having to make. But I don't, you know, I don't take it personally. I know, I, and I, I know that what we're trying to do in the end will help those communities. It'll provide long-term traditional recreation. It will bring people to the region that haven't been there before. It'll provide jobs. So, you know, that all that feels like the right thing to do. So what types of opposition are people coming to you with? What is it that they don't like about this idea? A lot of it is misguided. I mean, a lot of it is because people don't have experiences with national parks. So they're, they've read in other national parks that snowmobiling wasn't allowed or hunting wasn't allowed. or And they assume that that's the case for all national parks. Um, but parks can be tailored to certain communities in certain environments. They're, they're all very different from one another. Um, but I think a lot of it is is fear of the federal government and fear of change and the unknown because there hasn't Maine has so little public land federally owned land is like four percent of the state of Maine. Uh, the rest is private. So when you compare that to Western states, you know this Washington, Oregon, or almost are over half federally owned. So we just don't have that understanding here, and so there's this education that has to go on. I mean, I certainly had to go through it myself. Like, what are the different land management agencies in the federal government, and what do they all do? They're all, they all do different things. Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife, National Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management. They all do have very different um, practices and, and motives. Um, but the Park Service feels like the right thing for me and the, and the right thing for the region. It was created, the legislation that created the Park Service says to conserve unimpaired for future generations' enjoyment. So it's really about conservation, but conservation for people. And that's what I think is really important in the Katahdin region because people love the outdoors, and there's a long tradition of being outside and hunting and fishing and horseback riding and hiking and everything that happens at Acadia, rafting, on and on and on. So I feel like the Park Service is the right is the right agency to, to own land in, in the Katahdin region. And, and really across the country... That's what is the driver for rural economics. You know, in look at all the gateway communities around the country near national parks, and they're just thriving. I mean, we don't have to look any farther than Acadia, right? 2.7 million people visited Acadia last year. Those Bar Harbor's existence relies on that park. Um, so, you know, in a place like Millinocket or Patton, which you know has been slowly shrinking and jobs going away, they, they, a boost like that would be really helpful. Having spent um, quite a bit of time in northern Maine and driving back and forth to northern Maine and um, having been to Millinocket and Katahdin, it takes a while to get there. I mean, it, it's a it's a hike. Yeah. I mean, I, I went there yesterday morning, and I spent the whole day on the East Branch, the Penobscot. I drove the loop road in the proposed park, did a small hike, and then drove home. And I was back by 8.30. So you so, don't think that being that far north should be any sort of impediment? No. I mean, it... National parks by nature are in rural places, um, but it's, you know, to, to drive to Acadia from here takes the same amount of time that it would dri- take to drive to the proposed park. And when you think about where we are situated in the country, there are 90 million people within a day's drive of the Katahdin region. So that's a quarter of the population of the United States. And then you think about where people come into the United States from Europe, especially, you know, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., those are 
points. And so to have national parks very close to those areas, um, I think would really draw people to Northern Maine. We, the, the Park Service gets about 20 million visitors a year from, from Europe alone. And so that's, if they fly to the East Coast, they would very likely come to, to Northern Maine. And when you look at the, a map of where national parks are, there's Acadia, and there isn't another one until it's Shenandoahs. So all the way down in Virginia, and in this very dense part of the United States. So while it feels like a long day drive to, to shoot up there for the day, um, if someone's on vacation, if family's on vacation, they decide to go to Acadia, they're, they're likely to go to Bangor, then an hour to Acadia, and then an hour to the North Woods. Seems like a trip. You know, that, so that's going to keep people in Maine longer, in Penobscot County longer. So I, I think that people will certainly go. It seems like there's there's an actual process that um, I guess communities go through when you're proposing a national park and um, and getting to the place where the community buys in. But there's also a process that you have to go through that's very logistical. Yeah, it has to do with the federal government. Describe that for me and sure. what that's been like for you. So there are two ways to create units of the National Park Service, and there are. I think almost 30 different units of the park service. There's the national parks, but there's national seashores, there's national monuments, there are national um, his, historic parks, battlefields, um, reserves, preserves, like, and they all have various different areas that they, that they protect. Um, there's two ways to create those, those units. One, the president can do it, or the Congress can do it. So for a long time, we worked on a bill, that a piece of legislation that would be introduced by our congressional delegation and passed through Congress. And we worked on that for several years. We drafted a, drafted a piece of legislation. We worked with our congressional delegation. And we worked with people in the Katahdin region to say, are, are we addressing your needs within this piece of legislation? And as we addressed more and more of the concerns and the needs, more and more support grew. And our congressional delegation became more interested and intrigued by the idea. In the end, we wanted to do something to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service, which is here this year, 2016. So we were putting pressure on our delegation saying, you know, 2016 is the year. So we really want to have the introdu- introduction of legislation then. And they, they weren't ready. They weren't, they weren't willing. So, you know, we, we worked on that last fall, in the fall of 2015 with them. And when we got signals that they weren't going to introduce the legislation, we started to to have conversations with the White House and said, "Okay, well, if, if we can't do it this way, we'll go we'll go to the to the president and see if he will do it." And in order to have the president do it, that he can use the 1906 Antiquities Act, which creates a national monument, and it can be administered by the Park Service. And so that's what our goal is now. And about half of the national parks that were created were initially created as a national monument. So Acadia was done. Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, in 1916 used the Antiquities Act to create Acadia, or it was called Sir Lamont Monument, National Monument, the Grand Canyon, Zion, the Olympic Mountains, um, all of the big parks in Alaska, they're all created by um, being a monument first. And oftentimes then it's followed up with a piece of legislation that creates the national park. So that's the path that we're on now, hoping that the president will use the 1906 Antiquities Act to create a national monument, we will transfer the land that we own 
to the National Park Service, and we'll also provide a $40 million endowment for operations and maintenance of the park. You oftentimes hear about a backlog of maintenance and the parks can't pay for themselves. And it's a challenge that um, we, we saw that needed to be addressed. And so the foundation will donate that $40 million to take care of the operations and maintenance. And um, so it'll essentially pay for itself. So we, we, you know, we are hoping that um, support continues to grow. Senator King has um, had a public meeting, and th- almost 1,300 people came to it. There was about 12 or about 1,100 people in support of it. It was, it was a great showing of support. Uh, Congressman Poliquin had a congressional field hearing in East Millinocket. About 60 people spoke at that, and 47 of them were in support, including elected officials in the local towns. So both of the both King and 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 Congressman Poliquin have heard that there is support, more support than opposition in the region, and so they're sort of moving into a more comfortable space. Um, but in the end, it, it will be the president's decision, and um, we're we're getting signals from people that work for him that this is that it's positive and, and we're moving in the right direction, but we don't know anything definitively yet. Is there a bit of a time crunch given that he is an outgoing president? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we have a new president, there will be a new secretary of interior and a new director of the park service and all the people at the council for environmental quality, which is the environmental arm of the white house will be new. And so there'll be a massive reeducation that would have to happen then. So we've said, um, you know, we'll we'll work on this project through 2016, and if we don't get it done, we'll decide something else to do with the land. We, but um, we felt like we had to have a deadline in order to keep keep things on pace. Um, but it's you know the president has done this a lot. He's used the Antiquities Act, I think, 21 times, and he seems comfortable doing it. He's put almost you know 270 million acres into conservation. He brought his family to Yosemite over the weekend, which is and, and spoke about. There's there's more work to be done, so hopefully he's talking about Maine. <laughs> That's what he's considering. I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but percentage-wise, um, of the proposed parks monuments that go into parks, how many generally are successful? Oh, I I'm not sure what a percentage, but. There's a there's a long list. You know, I was at a at a celebration that the Pew Charitable Trust had in Washington D.C. the other night, and it was all the monument proposals around the country and all the grassroots organizers. And there's a, there were a lot of people there. And you know, there's a, a national monument proposal in El Paso, Texas, and one in uh, in Owyhee Canyon in Oregon that I'd never even heard of. You know that. So, you know, he can't do them all, and I think. In a lot of ways, it, it it's really about his legacy and you know the president's what what he wants to have is sort of the the body of work of the conservation work that he is, he has completed and a lot of what he's worked on are are places of cultural significance you know the um, Cesar Chavez is home and um, Pullman in South Chicago where the the first black middle class um, existed and the labor movement started. They built Pullman rail cars. And so a lot of it has been cultural and part heritage sites. Um, So I think there's an, there's a desire to do a landscape size park. And um, this is a, this is an ecosystem that's not represented in the park service. It's Northern hardwood forest. The parks are 
a lot of rock and ice, you know, a lot of canyons, a lot of glaciers and big mountains, and there's not a lot of forest. There's not an especially northern hardwood forest. And so this is appealing, I think, from that standpoint. It's just a unique ecosystem within the system. If you were to be successful with um, getting this piece of land to be considered a monument and then ultimately considered a park, what would this look like? You know, what, what would your ultimate national park um, look like at that location? It would be somewhat similar to Acadia, probably not quite as designed as Acadia is, um, but there would be loop roads and visitor centers and kiosks and campgrounds. There would obviously be rangers there, uh, places to get information about what to go and visit, um, scenic vistas, hiking trails, biking trails, more amenities than exist there now. Um, but I also imagine an infrastructure growing in the local communities and the towns of Patton right now, there's, you know, they have what they need to get by, but not much beyond that. I can imagine a, a lodge of some sort there and um, more visitor services that would uh, begin to grow. I mean, imagine Bar Harbor a hundred years ago when Acadia was created, didn't have a lot. And it's, it's grown to meet the expectations of visitors. And I can imagine the communities around the proposed monument doing the same thing. Um, but for the most part, I think, you know, the beauty of the, the landscape would speak for itself. It would still be similar to what it looks like now. In the time that I've spent hiking Katahdin, I've noticed it's, it's, it's actually a fairly very fairly busy mountain for the size of it and for the remoteness of it do you have any concerns that if we were to bring a large number of people up in that area that it could negatively impact the environment or no i don't i I mean baxter is designed in a very specific way and there are very specific rules that um percival baxter set up in order for that to maintain its wilderness characteristics and so it'll be that way forever and um, the rangers that work for the, the state park and the rangers that would work for the National Park Service would have a great cooperative agree- you know, agreements and, and working relationships to make sure that the resource in Baxter is protected and protected the way it, it was mandated by Percival Baxter. Um, you know, about 90% of the visitors that go to Baxter want to climb Katahdin. I think by having a monument or you know national monument next door would bring people that way, and it would also bring people and sort of distribute them a little bit more evenly throughout. And the the north entrance of Baxter, for example, gets very very little uh, attention. And you know the Traveler Range and the Brothers and South Turner and all those mountains are so spectacular. No one really goes there. So this, I think, a monument could perhaps spread people out a little bit more. But if you think about what Acadia is like, I don't feel like the Acadia National Park is an unspoiled landscape. Um, and they get two, they got 2.7 million visitors last year, and you could fit almost two and a half Acadias within the proposed monument. And Baxter is even bigger. Baxter is 209,000 acres. So it's, there's a lot of space, and um, it would, it would, the management plan that would be put together would make sure that all of the resources are protected and they have a they have a mandate to do that you know in the legislation that created the park service is is conservation first and foremost so they would make sure that the resource is is protected i know that this is not the only thing that you do this is you also have an interest in other various um, organizations around the portland area and around the state of maine really what are some of the other things that you really feel passionate about well 
you know, the, the natural resources of Maine are just so spectacular and they're so intact. And so I spent a lot of time working in, in conservation-related activities. I'm on the board of the Maine Island Trails Association, so I love spending time on the Maine Islands. I spent all weekend out there, um, and it's just they're they're so spectacular. So that's that's a big interest of mine. And then I'm also on the board of the Maine Conservation Voters. So I spend a lot of time in the state house and working to promote good conservation laws and good conservation candidates um, to to run run our state. Um, it's a little bit more complicated right now. You know, we're, we've had some we've had some tough times and some tough opposition, but. Uh, um, I think because of the great work that Maine conservation voters and other environmental organizations have done, we've sort of held the line as much as we've, we've, we can. Um, and then, you know, just, I, I love, it's, you know, I lived in Seattle for seven years and being back in, in Portland is, it's like a neighborhood of Seattle without traffic. And, you know, it's just, it's such a fantastic place to live. And my wife, who's from Seattle, has just absolutely loved it. And it's great to raise children here, and it's such a dynamic state. We spend a, we have a farm in Gouldsboro, Maine, up on the coast. So we spend a lot of time up there, and I really love the the young organic agricultural movement that's happening here. We do a lot of work with Mafka. Um, it's you know, so it's it's a it's a dynamic state that I feel like is really on the verge of of. Um, some really great stuff. So why did you choose Portland? Um, I, I spent a lot of time in D.C., so being close to the airport is helpful. Um, my wife, who grew up in Seattle, is like, mm, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to move to Millinocket right off. <laughs> um, and, you know, she knew Maine a little bit, but the community of people that she got to know when we were living in Seattle were all in Maine. All my friends were all in Port- Portland. And, um she also was finishing graduate school when we came here, and, and so she she finished her program at USM. So that was that was part of the decision. But Portland, you know, Portland's a great town, and and it's easy to get out. Really, I mean, that's that's a that's a huge plus about Portland. Um, I mean, I, a day trip to the East Branch of the Penobscot yesterday didn't feel like that that tough. And I can leave my house an hour before a flight to Washington D.C., which is also really easy. And it's walkable, and yeah, it's, it's a really great town. Why did your mother care so much about this, and why do you care so much about this? Well, you know, when she sold Burt's Bees, there was a real sense of giving back. You know, she moved the company to North Carolina in the um, in the early '90s, and felt like because it was so successful, she could give back some of the money that she'd made but into northern Maine and, and land conservation seemed like the most appropriate thing to do um, because there was a real need and a lot of land was for sale um, and for me it's really you know this is I grew up in in northern Maine I grew up my dad worked in Millinocket when I was a kid I saw Millinocket thriving you know really at its peak and well not maybe not at its peak but in the early 80s it was doing really well and um it's really suffering. And so I feel like there's an opportunity to help the local economy and to really change some of the, um, some of the hardships that they've experienced over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, it's really more, it's about the people for me. You know, I want to, I want to have, I want to have people be successful and live fulfilled lives there. And, um, 
the question that you had about wellness. You know, wellness for me is about communities working well together and people really enjoying where they live and being able to be successful in the places they live. You know, that's super important. Right? Yeah, well, I agree with you. And, and you're referring to a questionnaire that we have everybody fill out when they first come in to the radio show. Um, and it's interesting that you said striking the right balance between uh, living and work, family and friends, community and self. If I can read your handwriting. Yeah. And I and I think that, that that's a really important way to look at it. That you're you know, there's always going to be competing demands in every direction. But if you can try to find a way to um, be measured in your response to all these demands so that so that I guess all all boats will float, I guess. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think it is it's really hard to do in, in interior Maine too. I mean, there's it there's not a lot of obvious jobs, so a lot of people work a lot of different um, a lot of different jobs that work close to the land. Um, so I, you know, I want people to be able to stay in those communities and, and still have a positive experience. So it's in balance, you know, that balance is tough to strike. I think. Lucas, is there anything else that you think people would like to know about, um, regarding your, your hope of creating a national park? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, I want more people from Southern Maine to go to Northern Maine and, and know how accessible it is and know how beautiful it is. You know, it's worth the trip. I see, I know a lot of people down here that have not been to Millinocket or not been to Baxter, not been to the East Branch of the Penobscot. So I encourage people to make the trip. And when they're there, encourage people to come here and see what Portland is like and see what Southern Maine has to offer. Because there's it, this idea of two mains drives me crazy. You know, we are one state. We're a big state. You can drive a long way and, and still be in Maine. But we need to understand each other, you know, and, and that what's happening in Jackman and what's happening in Millinocket and Presque Isle and Portland are all really different, but worthy of happening. And more of an understanding of all that, I think, is is super important. So I encourage people to go up and check it out and come down and check Portland out and get to know one another because it is it's a great state with a lot of great things to offer i've been speaking with lucas st Clair, who in 2001 took over his family's operating foundation elliotsville plantation inc which owes which owns 125,000 acres of timberland in northern and central maine that they hope to create a national park and recreation area with um I, I think that you've convinced me. I wasn't, right. actually, I was kind of convinced before, but you've convinced me even more. Great. And I really wish you all the best. And Thank you I so much. And I hope that you are able to make this happen. I appreciate the time you've taken to come talk to me today. Absolutely. Maybe next time we'll do it in the Katahdin region. That sounds good. All right. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. 
The current show schedule includes Ruth Hamill, Joanne Perrin, Alan Bunker, and Jean Jack. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormain.com. Don't miss the third Maine Live event taking place on September 22nd at the Portland Museum of Art, presented by your friends at Maine Magazine. Take the day to be inspired by stories about creating a vibrant state from 15 Maine speakers. Tickets are $100 and are sure to go fast. Find out more at MainLiveEvent.com. It is my great pleasure today to spend time with Susan Corbett, who is the owner and CEO of Axiom Technologies, a telecommunications and information technology company headquartered in Machias that has been creating and developing solutions for rural broadband deployment since 2005. Axiom has brought high-speed internet service to Washington County with over 90 access points, creating an umbrella of coverage over 2,500 square miles. Susan has been a public speaker throughout Maine and the United States advocating for rural broadband and is dedicated to the mission of bringing broadband to every resident and business. I actually paused when I was reading this 2,500 square miles. That's, that's a lot of distance. That's, you're covering a lot of space. Sure. So Washington County, um, it takes four hours to drive from one side of the county to the other. I love when I speak in the United States because then I will um, tell my audience and there are only two traffic lights and the closest one is one hour from my office. So that's rural. That, that, that's right. There's not a lot of cars going back and forth there. So how did you come to be doing the work that you do? Well, thank you for inviting me to chat with you today, and we always love to talk about broadband and broadband in Maine in particular. So I came to um, Maine in 1998. My background, I was an office nurse for 25 years and did um, practice consulting. So I was around when computers were first coming into physician offices, and for many, um, many uh, physician practices, they would get a computer and then couldn't figure out how to get everything out of the computer. And so I started doing consulting and eventually started doing consulting here in Maine and in Down East Maine in particular. Uh, so back in 98, um, I made the decision to make the move here and um, I had a billing service on the side and I had staff in Massachusetts and I relocated that to Jonesport, Maine. And um, in the height of the billing service, we had about 10 um, employees that worked either at the office in Jonesport or remotely. Um, our practices were from, many were from the greater Boston area and spanned all the way um, through um, Maine right up to down east Maine. So this is when I first started hearing about economic development um, because we were, I had um, local um, people that I hired in paying them Boston wages with all of those benefits because the, the, the money was coming in from the greater Boston area. So eventually the docks in Boston wanted to connect to us electronically. And so I thought that might be easy. And I called the telephone company at the time and said, I'd like a, a, a broadband connection. And of course, they laughed at me because at the time, there were only two towns in all of Washington County that had broadband, Machias and Callis. Um, so I started searching and searching and eventually ended up with something called a fa fractional T1. Um, and I paid $750 a month. My dad, who lived in um, Massachusetts uh, and had Comcast, was paying $50 a month and he was fa his was faster than mine. Um, at one point I talked to an engineer 
um, at uh, uh, the telephone company in Massachusetts, and I, my claim to fame is I stamped my foot and said, they have wireless in Taipei, why can't I have it in Jonesport? And he said, well, you can, it's just that we're not going to help you. So the little light bulb went off. Um, eventually, I met the engineers that put in the DSL, and I pitched the idea of a wireless network in Jonesport and bought into the company in May of 2005. And in June of 2005, we put our first wireless access point in Jonesport. And that was my intention. That was all I was going to do. And then the rest of Washington County um, started contacting us and saying, well, help us with this. And so now we have these 90 access points um, all over Washington County. We do fiber, we do DSL, and we're working with communities throughout the, st throughout the state and helping them figure out broadband solutions and um, what, what's their plan going forward. So that's the, that's the background of how I came to be. <laughs> well, I, I think you, you very quickly went over the, the fact that you were 25 years as an office nurse. Mm -hmm. So that's kind, of, that's, that's kind of a big, big jump. Well, it is, but then when you think about it, so in the evolution of, med of, of medical practices, they went from paper systems to electronic system. And that's not any different than any other business, really. You know, paper ledgers, the old um, green ledgers with the pencils, um, to, you know, programs like QuickBooks and Excel spreadsheets. So the jump from paper system to electronic, regardless of what you what your background is, is all the same. We, are all, we have all had to face that over a period of time. Um, the, the Certainly having the, the medical background you know, there's, 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 you ha you're driven by um, helping people and helping people get connected. Helping people learn how to use technology is really the big driver behind us. So in 2006, we hired an educator, um, and that educator worked with businesses and taught um, uh, employers and employees how to use technology to become technology proficient. And that we have tra stayed true to that mission since 2006. Um, in 2014, we spun off a nonprofit side of the company called the Axiom Education and Training Center. We've moved all of our um, education programs to that side of the company. We are um, we oversee and manage the adult education throughout all of Washington County. Uh, we continue doing digital literacy um, training not only in Washington County but throughout the, throughout Maine. And our program is recognized um, not only statewide but nationally and internationally. In the past couple of years, we've had over 4,000 adult learners come through our programs, and over 400 businesses um, have connected to us. So. You know, the connection, we have to have connection to every home and business in Maine. Um, but teaching people and learning how, what to do with the technology is as important, if not more important. We can have the best system in the world, but if people don't know how to use it, then what good is the system? It seems as though there's a, there's a hunger for this. Mm -hmm. It seems as though this desire for connection um, has really grown um, over the last, I don't know, I guess I want to say 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that when you first asked about the ability to connect, the answer was just straight up no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But somehow you got around that. Well, perseverance. I don't like to take no for an answer. Um, my, my, our poor techs have to, have to listen to that. You know, no, we can't connect someone. Well, you need to try harder. Um, we are 
committed to making sure that every home and business here um, in Maine has connectivity. Right now, there are about 2% um, of homes that have zero access to broadband connection. Um, that comes to about maybe 20,000 or so homes based on U.S. Census. And then if you think about all the homes that are not included in U.S. Census, like our seasonal homes, we're probably doubling that number. Um, so can making, making sure that every home and business um, has the ability to connect is extremely important for so many different reasons. Um, healthcare, education, business growth and development, economic development, connecting to the world. Um, sh- so it's, it's one of, it's our, our prime, it is one of our missions. Um, and then the second, the second thing, the mission or the second, um, uh, it's our mantra, you know, through, with technology and education, we can change the economic status of a region. So we see that every day. We see that as we work with businesses, small businesses, home businesses, big businesses, that when they can then sell their product worldwide, um, you know, and they can bring in, go back to my billing service, I brought in revenue from outside of Maine. Well, it's the same thing when you can get a business up online and they can sell their product to anyone in the world. Um, so it's a, it could be, it's a game changer for Maine um, and, for the, and for the United States. So we, um, um, we, just, we just stay uh, very focused on, um, on the importance of all of this. Why Jonesport? Oh, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. So I first came up here consulting in December of 1995, and I came in on Route 187. So Jonesport, the road in Jonesport is is um, uh, uh, like a like a peninsula. So you drove in on one side, and I got down to the Beals Island Bridge, and it was snowing lightly, and there were boats in the harbor, and I thought. Oh my heavens! I've just stepped into a Norman Rockwell calendar, and they say that if you fall in love um, in Down East Maine in the middle of the winter, you are hooked. So the following summer, I came up to do some more consulting, and I stayed um, in a little cottage on a beach um, in Jonesport. And I I woke up. I got I arrived in very dark. Didn't know where I was, and got up in the morning and had a cup of coffee and kind of wandered down this path and came on this beach and the sun was rising and I thought this is absolutely stunning and uh, bought a little cottage this was back in 1996 um, uh, the fall of 96 bought a little cottage and used it as a retreat and eventually by 98 decided this is where I want to live um, both my kids were in college um, they were off you know to conquer the world um, they weren't supposed to come back home, and uh, that's what the whole idea of getting them out of the nest and giving them good education. And so I made the move to Jonesport in January 1998 and have not looked back. It's been it was the best decision I could make. So you said they they weren't supposed to come back home, did they? No, they didn't. They they got there um, went on. They finished uh, uh, finished college. Went on for master's degrees. One went into Peace Corps. Um, they both have children. I have I have uh, three beautiful grandchildren from uh, from them, and uh, um, I'm proud of both of them. Do they have your same affinity for Maine? They love to come visit, and the grandchildren, the two oldest, one will be 10 and one is uh, 6, love coming to Nanny's house, Nanny Camp. They can come play on the beach. They are. Um, they love to, you know, is the tide coming or going? Uh, when the 
six-year-old was about, I don't know, three or four years old. Um, he would tell his mom that, um, you know, his milk was either at high tide or low tide, you know, depending on how full the glass was, or the bath was at high tide or low tide. So, you know, there's a, there's a connection they have back to Jonesport. They love to come, and we lo- I love to have them. It is interesting that what you're providing for Down East Mm -hmm. is the ability for people to live in a beautiful place Mm -hmm. and be nurtured, um, their souls really, to Mm -hmm. be nurtured, to be connected. You talk about your grandchildren, their connection with the tides, Mm -hmm. um, but also earn a living. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really been, I think, um, somewhat of a bugaboo for the state of Maine Mm -hmm. for a long, long time, is it's hard to live and work here and and have it be sustainable. So that I think that you know, as we work commu- with communities across the state and in other rural areas in the United States, um, that is that is the, the the discussion we have. How do you you have quality of place, but can you survive? And when y- if if you're able, you know, think of my my first business when I came here. My clients were from outside of Maine, so. You know, I went, you know, my staff came to work, but we weren't working within those physician offices. We were working remotely. And there are many businesses that can do that. Um, I wished that when we started in 2005 that I had, and I, it's sort of like you can look into the future. I wish I had started to figure out that when the seasonal residents would come and they would arrive and they we would turn on their internet and then they'd leave and we'd turn off their internet and what I and I see those emails come through you know through the support support system and I'll see you know we're here turn us on and you know okay we're going well that time period has gotten further and further apart so what I what I feel is that they they may have come up a, memor- a Memorial Day and went home on Labor Day. And now they're coming up in March or April and they're staying until maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas. And so instead of the, we're here for three months and someplace else for nine, we're seeing a lot of that reversal. Um, and that is really um, economically impactful for communities. If we can keep our seasonal people here longer, that is a benefit for all of those local businesses that are sustaining them, whether it's the local you know, supermarket or um, all the sports and recreation or anything that, you know, we're, that, that our businesses are doing um, to carve out a living. And then on, and so the reason that those seasonal residents are staying longer is because they can stay connected to their place of business. So if I'm traveling, and I think back when my kids were little, can I go to camp for a month with my kids and they can have a great month playing in the lake or doing whatever they're doing, but I can still work? you know, at the end of the day or at night or whatever. One of my kids were little, I used to do that. So if we could, if we can do that, then people stay longer and, um, and, and supporting all of those of us that are making a living here in a very rural state. My medical practice is in Brunswick and that's where I also went to college. And what I've noticed over time is, um, a fair number of people who are retiring to the Brunswick area, and I think that's true mm-hmm. across the state. Has your business been impacted by people who are coming to the state of Maine and living here many months out of the year, sometimes to be near grandchildren, sometimes mm-hmm. because it's where their family is from? Um, has this been something that you've noticed as well? So in Jonesport, I really noticed it. There were there have been many there were many 
retirees, young retirees, um, many from professional backgrounds, that it became quality of place. They could find a place on the ocean, pricing was reasonable, um, they could build their dream home. And so we started to see a lot of um, retirees, young retirees coming into the area, not only in Jonesport, but throughout all of, all of um, Washington County, specifically around those coastal, those coastal communities. Do you notice a difference between what people who are younger might want out of an educational experience with your organization versus people who are older? So we're, you know, so on our adult ed side, we are, um, we just graduated 18 students who received, um, did high school completion. Um, that's, you know, the, that's really exciting for the staff that's teaching them. We do college transition, so we're working with um, adults all ages that they may want to go back and maybe finish a post-secondary or start a post-secondary degree. Um, on the digital literacy side, if you think about anyone who's over 35, they really were not, uh, computers were not around when they were going through school. And so they've learned on their own and they've learned because they've said, you know, hey, how did you do that? That's what I've done for years. Um, and, we, you know, we're, we should be pretty proud of the fact that we've been able to figure this out on our own. Um, I like to tell people, walk into Best Buy and go on technology overload. What is all of this stuff? Um, the take rate in Maine, which means that if there are 100 available connections or in a neighborhood, only 75 will subscribe. So Maine is on par with the United States. It's about a 75% take rate nationwide and 75% here. Um, there are many reasons why people do not use technology. They may not be able to afford it. They may not be able to afford. They may not be able to afford the connection. They may not be able to afford the equipment. They may have no idea what this is. Why, why do I need to do this? Why do I need to learn how to use a computer? Um, so we are um, we are very dedicated to the digital inclusion movement. Um, we are involved on a national level on that. Digital inclusion includes affordable broadband, affordable equipment, digital literacy training, and public computer access. Um, and so working with adults who are entering the technology world for the first time, there's typically a reason what has sparked them to do that. They got a new Kindle. They got an iPad. Their boss said, you need to learn how to use Excel. Um, they, what, a Roku? I can go on and I can get movies on demand. How do I do that? And so that typically is the beginning for someone who is just starting out on learning technology. There's something that's sparking them. And then once you have them um, in one of our classes, it then opens up their world to all of the other programs that are out there. Our director of educational services, Jane Blackwood, um, has her her um, she's been known what her, what she is known for is that how we teach is more important than what we're teaching. So making sure that those classes and the environment is really comfortable and friendly and someone can take the same class over and over again, um, you know, that's really important. 
we also move classes around throughout the throughout different regions so we utilize all the libraries the libraries are a great place to hold classes there is broadband at those there's 100 megs at most libraries in maine um you have many of those libraries have public computers that people can go in and use um, technology um and libraries are just good friendly places and so we partner with libraries in maine um and they're they're about 25% of our classes are held in libraries. Um, so ha- very, very um, happy with that relationship. What does the future hold for Axiom Technologies? Where, where do you hope to see your business going or um, what do you hope to offer to the state of Maine in the upcoming years? So almost two years ago, I brought in a partner, um, Mark Ouellette, who has a very strong background in economic development. And he has um, taken over the operations of Axiom. And the goal is, um, and we are doing that now, is to bring what we're doing statewide and across the country in the rural areas. And that process began almost immediately after Mark came on board. Um, We are... um, we are passionate about helping communities figure out what to do for their community because there is no one answer. There's no one technology. Every community is different and they have different needs. So we're very excited about just continuing that work, um, helping people get connected, understanding why it's important to get connected, and uh, just staying true to the mission of what we do. It's in our, you know, every connection counts, and um, we're um, we're committed to make sure that everyone has the ability to be connected. I've been speaking with Susan Corbett, who is the owner and CEO of Axiom Technologies, a telecommunications and information technology company headquartered in Machias. We will have um, a link to the Axiom Technologies website on our show notes page. So for people who are interested, please do go and find out more. Susan, I'm so pleased that you are bringing this sort of connectivity to the state of Maine, and I I really appreciate your talking with me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Curtis Memorial Library in Brunswick features a unique interactive space called The Collaboratory, with rotating monthly themes for all ages and interests. Join us in September for the exhibit, The Writer's Life, and on Wednesday, September 14th at 6.30 p.m., when Dr. Lisa Belisle and writer Joan Dempsey will continue a conversation begun earlier this year on the importance of writing spaces and Joan's wonderful backyard writing shed, a former chicken coop, as well as the craft of writing and Joan's acquisition of a significant research grant to travel to Warsaw and Washington, D.C. for work on This Is How It Begins, a novel in progress. And more about the writer's life, please visit curtislibrary.com for more information or call 207-725-5242 extension 219 you have been listening to love maine radio show number 259 accessing maine our guests have included lucas st Clair and susan corbett for more information on our guests and extended interviews visit lovemainradio.com love maine radio is downloadable for free on itunes For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. 
We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Accessing Maine show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.